0: For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that... Uh, we are prepared for worship to make sure that we are prepared to study God's Word, which is the highest form of worship. In the study of God's Word, we learn to think as God would have us to think, think consistently with what He has revealed to us. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to focus and study on His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, just as you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, known in John chapter 1 as the Word, to become flesh and to dwell amongst us, so you have revealed yourself to us in the written Word, and that in the written Word of Scripture we have absolute truth. As our Lord said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is the truth of your Word that gives us true freedom freedom no matter what our circumstances may may be, no matter what the political situation may be, there is genuine soul freedom only when we are, first of all, saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and second, when our thinking is aligned with your word and we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit in fellowship with you. Now, Fathers, we... Continue our study on the angelic conflict this morning and the aspects of spiritual warfare for the believer. We pray that you would challenge us with these things, recognizing that we are always engaged in a greater unseen conflict that goes far beyond our senses. The only way that we can be successful is by complete dependence upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. During the War of Northern Aggression, which some of you refer to as the Civil War, the war between the states, and some who are uneducated refer to as the War of the Southern Rebellion, there was a general by the name of William Tecumseh Sherman, who is still not forgiven by those who live in Georgia, who gave one of the most uh, misquoted quotes of that war. He's actually said war is all hell. And that is an apt description of what the Bible describes as spiritual warfare. It's not evident to us at the instant that we trust in Christ as our Savior that we are immediately drafted into an army. It is the army of the Lord made up of believers in this age. We are Christian warriors, and it is up to us in The time after our salvation to decide if we are going to be a casualty or part of that victorious army of the Lord who learns the Word of God, uh, lets it shape their thinking that we might advance to uh, spiritual maturity. Spiritual warfare is a term that describes the conflict that we all get into. It is unseen, it is invisible but it is very much real. Uh, theologians have summarized what the Bible teaches in saying that there are three enemies to the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And over the past four or five months as I've gone through this series on the angelic conflict, we have focused on its origins with the original rebellion of the creature identified as Halel bin shahar translated as Lucifer in the Old King James, otherwise known after his fall as Satan, the adversary of God. Uh, we began with his fall. We followed that into uh, the angelic rebellion, the creation of man, the fall of man. We've traced his attacks on mankind all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've looked at various aspects of... Uh, this spiritual warfare, this angelic conflict, and how believers through the ages fit within it. We come to a conclusion of this series this morning as we wrap it up by looking at the armor that God has provided the believer in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. It is the conclusion to our last part where we look at the dealing with the spiritual life aspects, the Three enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil became our enemy at the time of his, uh, he originated his enmity with God at his fall when uh, he succumbed to arrogance in his soul, uh, desired to have the authority of God to rule creation as he wanted to according to his thinking, thinking the creature could subvert the creator, and he managed to deceive a third of the angels, to follow him in that rebellion. There was a trial held. God sentenced them to eternity in the lake of fire, created the lake of fire according to Matthew 25, 41. But for some reason, though the lake of fire has already been a perfect tense, completed action, been prepared for the devil and his angels, there's a postponement of the execution of that sentence. Apparently, I've pointed out in the past that Satan must have raised some objection, accused God. That's why he's called Satan, the accuser, that he was not uh, fair, that somehow he would not give the creature opportunity to show that he could function as well as God, challenging God's integrity, God's justice, and God's grace. So God, in his graciousness, decided to deal with this issue by developing a laboratory uh, case study that would entail the uh, creation of two lesser creatures, but they were uh, endowed with similar uh, abilities as the angels. They were intellectual creatures. They had volition, responsibility, and they were placed in the Garden of Eden, and they were created in God's image, and they had a a, a, a perfect righteousness. But there was a test, and that test had to do with the uh, fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. They were prohibited from eating it. And this was the point of the attack. So uh, Satan indwelt one of the creatures in the garden, a serpent, and he enticed the woman to uh, question God's goodness, question uh, God's provision, question God's revelation, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the result was that she... Succumbed, she ate of the fruit and then she gave it to her husband. He ate and the human race fell. So we have the first of our enemies, Satan. The second is the introduction of a corrupt nature, which we call the sin nature, that is uh, true of every single uh, human being. The third enemy is the world system as it's identified in the New Testament, but actually, worldliness really encompasses the thinking of Satan, and we've identified it under two categories, autonomy and antagonism. Autonomy means the creature is asserting his independence from God, that somehow we can find happiness, meaning, stability in life without being 100% dependent upon God in everything that we do. And so the creature thinks in deception because of the deceptive quality of our own sin nature because of the attractiveness of the world system, which provides these comfort zones of rationalization that makes us think that we're actually happy, stable, content, even though we know in the core of our soul that we are not walking consistently with God, not thinking his thoughts after him 100% of the time, and so we succumb to worldly Thinking. We talked about the characteristics of worldliness, the fact that because it partakes of the same attributes, the same kind of thinking that characterized Satan's fall, that in James 3:13 through 15, it is defined as being earthly, natural, and demonic. So whenever we're not walking by the Spirit, whenever we're thinking outside of divine viewpoint, in human viewpoint... We are thinking the devil's thoughts after him, we are thinking the devil's way, and whether we want to uh, fully face the harshness of it or not, we are under demon influence. Human viewpoint is demon influence, there's no area of neutrality, it's an either or, it's either walking by the flesh, walking by the spirit, we're either thinking divine viewpoint or we're thinking human viewpoint, which is satanic viewpoint, which is uh, demon influence. Uh, the first aspect is autonomy or independence. The second is, is antagonism because when the creature asserts his independence from God, eventually things don't work. Remember when you were a kid and you used to disobey your parents and, and then you would do it your way and it wouldn't work and you really got mad because they were right? Well, that's sort of the dynamic that happens when we live independently from God and it doesn't work, then what happens is we... Be- often become more entrenched in our independence and more hostile to God. And so the world system is antagonistic to the authority of God, the plan of God, and the purposes of God and attacks in both subtle and overt ways and has developed very many systems of thought, philosophies, religions, rationalizations that range from the simple to the sophisticated to justify, rationalize, and anesthetize us and our thinking in ways that allow us to think that we're actually successful in living against God. The Christian life is a battle. It sometimes seems overwhelming, but there is always more than enough supply and provision for us From the grace of God, God in his omniscience knew every problem, every difficulty that the creature would ever face in life, and he has supplied us with everything we need in order to be victorious in this conflict. It is ultimately, though, a conflict of thinking, a battle in the mind, a battle of the mind, a battle that takes place between your ears. It is an issue of not only what you think, but how you think. And last week we investigated this in terms of the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5 where Paul said for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh in other words he draws this contrast between the fact that there are ways and means of approaching life's problems and challenges and difficulties that seem very good to us. They, they feel good to us. They're within our comfort zone. We think they actually work. We, we find ways to, to sort of uh, deaden the pain, the challenge of living in a fallen world with disappointing people who are um, fallen creatures themselves and often the cause of uh, difficulty in our own lives. And so we find ways to handle these things that aren't any different from the unbeliever. We manage our stress and we come up with different uh, uh, problem-solving techniques that uh, range from uh, just trying to escape reality through drugs and alcohol and entertainment to uh, trying to come up with alternative schemes to explain reality that give us some sort of intellectual Uh, comfort zone but all of this is nothing more than uh, worldliness and so we have to learn the difference between living in the flesh out of the sin nature and uh, living according to the principles of the spiritual life given in the scripture the whole metaphor that we have in scripture of walking walking in the spirit walking in the light these are uh, as a synonym for living. This is how we are to live. Walking and living are are the same thing. Walking is a metaphor for life, and we live. Uh, the, even though we live in the flesh, we do not live according to the flesh. We do not war according to these principles. We have to understand the difference between the systems the world devises to somehow make life work, and the systems that God has provided for us. And this is a tremendous challenge that goes to the core of a doctrine known as the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture tells us that God has given you everything you need to know to solve any difficulty you have in life, whatever that may be. That means that a long time before sociology came along and a long time before Uh, modern psychology came along and a long time before uh, many other things come along positive thinking and all these other uh, aspects of worldliness in our modern culture believers who lived in the 9th century or the 15th century or the 18th century or the 19th century could have happiness, stability contentment in life it didn't matter what their circumstances were, what their parents had done to them, it didn't matter what they lacked or what they had in terms of a prosperity test in life, it wouldn't matter what chemical imbalances there were in their body, because God's word said he was sufficient to handle everything, and and to think that you can solve your problems with the Bible plus anything else is no different from thinking you're saved by faith plus works adding something to the grace of God. And so it is a subtle but definite challenge to the sufficiency of God's word today. So Paul says that we are to walk according to the principles of God's word. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They don't come out from the sin nature. They're not consistent with the thinking of the cosmic system. But literally it's not divinely powerful It is empowered by God. What we have here is a form of the word dunamis, dunata. And dunata is used with a dative. It's it's an idiomatic type of expression. Last week I said power of God, which reflects more of a genitive. That's the idea. It's God's power, not our power. It is God's method, not our method. It is God's word, not our thinking that is the issue. So that as we will see in Ephesians 6:10 and following the uh, battle is focused on whether we will do it God's way with God's weapons and God's tools or whether we will try to somehow merge that and compromise it with various forms of human viewpoint thinking 2 Corinthians 10:5 we are destroying speculations And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So we see a contrast here between thought and thought. Speculation versus knowledge of God. There is guesswork ultimately based on empiricism and rationalism because there's always another piece of data that might be discovered tomorrow or next week or next year that causes uh, the thinkers of this world to have to go in and revamp their system because they don't have a starting point that begins with an omniscient God who has revealed to us that which we must know, that which we uh, need to know in order to properly interpret all of reality. As i pointed out so many times, Adam could learn all kinds of things through empiricism and rationalism in the garden, but the one thing he needed to know that would help him uh, interpret reality truly was the information about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Divine revelation forms the starting point, and reason and empiricism then start on that foundation and develop from there, otherwise it's shifting sand. So we... Look at our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and from there we recognize that we have weapons of warfare that are to take every thought captive, not just what we think but how we think. And it is to be taken under uh, the authority of God in his word. The word is the thinking of Christ. So that takes us to Ephesians chapter 6 where the... Weapons of our warfare, the armor of God, is expanded. Here we have uh, vivid imagery, a metaphor that Paul uses. And some of these images are used other places in slightly different ways. The reason I say that is you're always running into somebody who tries to make these illustrations walk on all fours and they just push it too far. The the main idea here is that, that the believer is protected by that which God provides and that the nature of our role in the warfare is defensive to stand in the truth, not offensive to go out and try to attack uh, spiritual unseen forces. We rest in the provision of God and actively uh, trust in him. The key word that we find in various passages related to this is a the, the Greek word histemi or a form of it anthistemi, and it is a word that has at its core a defensive meaning. Ephesians 6:13 says, "Therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day." That does not say to attack the devil; it says to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. James 4:7 seven, "Submit therefore to God, resist the devil." and he will flee from you. First Peter 5, 9, but resist him, relating to the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The only command given to believers for dealing with Satan is to resist the devil, not to attack the devil. And it is significant that uh, there are three passages in Scripture from different authors in different contexts that all deal with this principle of resisting the devil. Here's the, the Greek word ontthistamy, the one that is the form that is used most of the time, which means to resist, which means to stand against, which means to oppose. We find this word three times in Ephesians 6,10 and following. Whenever you find something repeated that much, it ought to grab your attention that God the Holy Spirit is making sure you don't miss the point that it's about resistance. It is not about attack. And so we are to uh, resist. It is traditionally translated with the terminology to stand firm. And so we have... Uh, passages such as uh, Ephesians 6:11 that we are to put on the whole armor of God for the purpose that we may stand firm against the wiles of the devil. And then in verse 13 we read, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, to resist. So th- there's a there's a procedure here. Where first you do certain things, then you do other things, and the result of having done those things is that we can stand firm, we can resist, uh, the devil. And then again, for a third time in verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. This is where we get into the, uh, prerequisites in order to stand firm. You have to first put on the armor, of God, But before you can put on the armor of God, you have to decide that that's something important that you want to do in life, that you realize you're in a spiritual battle and that the way to avoid becoming a casualty in the conflict is to uh, orient yourself to the grace of God and to Bible doctrine. Now, this word, resist, is a very important word to understand. It's a word that is often used... Historically, in a military con, uh, context, it's a word that is used to describe setting up a defensive posture and not going on the offensive. It's a word that would be applied to a sentry's responsibility to guard an encampment or to guard a fortress and to watch for the enemy. If the enemy is spotted, or the enemy is attempting to infiltrate the camp. Then it is the sentry's job to alert the troops to defend the position and not the sentry's job to attack. Uh, I came up with a great illustration many years ago when I was in seminary. As I was reading to put myself to sleep at night, I often, uh, from the time I was a young boy, I would often read fiction at night before I went to sleep to just sort of relax my mind and to think, and especially in seminary, and about the time I started uh, Dallas Seminary, I discovered uh, the Writings of Louis L'Amour, and uh, that was just a nice, lightweight pablum for the brain as you're seeking to uh, unwind from reading all these tomes of theology and exegesis all day. And, and uh, through the course of my master's in theology and my work on my doctorate, I think I read everything uh, Louis L'Amour wrote five or six times. And somewhere in there, he had a novel that related to the second-worst massacre that the United States Army ever went through during the Indian Wars that is often overshadowed by Custer's last stand, but it is known as Fetterman's uh, Massacre. And Fetterman was a young, arrogant captain who had problems with authority orientation. Now, this took place 141 years ago. As a matter of fact, the anniversary of this attack is coming up this week. On Friday, December 21st, we'll celebrate the 141st anniversary of this particular massacre. Um, It occurred as a result of American westward expansion that was cranking up again after the uh, war between the states. In 1863, John Bozeman had blazed a new trail that went up through Wyoming to the gold fields in Montana. Of course, that upset Uh, The Indian tribes. Uh, In 1864, Colorado militiamen unjustly attacked a group of uh, Cheyenne who were peaceful and massacred uh, 200 of them at the Sand Creek Massacre. As a result of that, the tribes all up through the northern plains erupted in attacks against uh, settlers who were moving west. And in order to protect them, the uh, federal government established a, a string of forts along the Bozeman Trail, and the most uh, significant of which was the was Fort Phil Kearney. Now, here's a map on the screen so you can get ge- geographically oriented. You, it's just below the Wyoming uh, Montana uh, border in sort of uh, north central uh, Wyoming, and this is where they had established this particular. Uh, fortification, it was well built it was uh, well defended but the mission that was given to uh, Colonel Henry uh, B. Carrington was defensive in nature he was to defend those who were on the trail, he was not to go out and to seek and destroy uh, hostile Indians it was a defensive mission, he was not given either the equipment or the manpower to mount an offensive uh, campaign but of course, the uh, Indians, specifically the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, were not about to sit by and let them establish this strong fortification in the midst of their uh, traditional lands. And so there were numerous fights that broke out at that time, and on the bitterly cold morning of December 21st, they had devised a uh, wonderful plan of deception, Actually, if if I didn't know better, I would think that uh, they had devised this. Uh, Crazy Horse was the one in charge, that he had devised this because he had read uh, Joshua uh, chapter 6 and God's plan of attack for the uh, Jews against the city of Ai. It was just to send in a decoy force, have them fade back, and pull the uh, enemy out from their fortification and then ambush them. And that's exactly what... The uh, Sioux did under Red Cloud. Uh, They, A party of woodcutters had gone out from the fort, and on their way back they were uh, attacked by the Indians. And so Carrington uh, yielded to the demands of this arrogant, brash uh, captain who kept pushing him and pushing him to allow him to go out and attack attack the Indians. But Carrington gave him specific orders and said, you stay within sight of the fort and just go out, provide covering fire for the returning uh, woodcutters, and then come back. Do not attack the Indians. But Fetterman decided he knew better, and so rather than maintaining his defensive posture, uh, as soon as the woodcutters were back safely, he attacked uh, this small party of Indians led by a crazy horse. There were about ten of them, and they they were coming down. They were just... uh, uh, harassing the troops a little bit, and then they acted as if they were scared, and they headed back over a ridge, and Carrington specifically said to keep in sight of the fort. But as soon as they went over the ridge, they were out of, out of sight. They could no longer receive any kind of defending uh, support from the fort, and as they went over the ridge, some 2,000 uh, Sioux, Arapaho, and Cheyenne launched estimates as high as 40,000 arrows, and within just a matter of minutes, all 81 were dead. Great illustration of what happens when you leave your defensive posture. And that's what happens when believers leave the defensive posture of the armor of God. And the result is that it's based on arrogance and unfortunately today and I get lots of questions on this how do you rebuke the devil how do you uh, do this kind of thing and that comes from just faulty theology that's out there before we leave Fetterman there's a uh, artist depiction of the battle by J.K. Ralston but what happens is people just get succumbed to arrogance and Second Peter warns us about this in terms of spiritual warfare. He's referring to uh, various uh, false teachers. He says, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. That's a rejection of God's authority in his word. That's what Fetterman did. He rejected the authority of Carrington. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. It is not our job to rebuke the devil, to bind the devil to any number of synonyms that are used in uh, popular spiritual warfare terminology today. Our job is to stand firm. Our Old Testament illustration comes when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and they were to be attacked by the Amalekites. This is the scene where uh, they're going to be overwhelmed and of course all the Israelites are panicking and they come to Moses and Moses says, do not fear, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. It's translated in the Septuagint with the same word that we have in Ephesians 6. Histamine, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now that didn't mean that they just sat back folded their hands and waited for God to send fire from heaven. What it meant was that they were going to trust God and engage the enemy in combat, knowing that as they did what their as they performed their responsibility, God would be the one to give them victory. And to symbolize their trust in God, Moses had to stand out there with his hand with his arms up. And after a while he became tired and his arms would begin to sag and When his arms were up, the Israelites would win. When his arms sagged, the Amalekites would win. So he got Aaron on one side and Hur on the other side to prop his arms up. Then they won. But it was important to teach the Israelites that the battle was the Lord's. The battle wasn't theirs. It wasn't based on their technology. It wasn't based on their uh, skill at strategy and tactics. It wasn't based on the fact that they had a better understanding of the ten principles of warfare than the Amalekites had. It was based on the fact that God was the one in charge. And you engage in the battle God's way. And only then do you have true uh, spiritual victory. So this is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. He says, finally, because he's coming to the conclusion of this epistle to the Ephesian church. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This principle runs throughout the scripture. Not only do we find it back in Exodus 14:13 through 14, but David said the same thing as he was going out to meet Goliath. He said the battle is the Lord's, but the Lord's battle has to be done the Lord's way. He has a method and specifics so that we a right thing done in a wrong way is still wrong. So we have to learn, as I keep saying, not only do we have to learn how to think the right things, but we have to think the right way. Our methodology is as important as what we do. You can't say that the end justifies the means when it comes to the spiritual life. We have to do it uh, everything God's way. And since God is omnipotent, when we engage in the battle the way he says to engage in the battle then his power becomes our power his strength our strength and his might our might we are to be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might three different words are used by paul to get the point across that god's power is sufficient for any problem that we face in life there's no testing there's no challenge There's no suffering, there's no difficulty that is too great for the grace of God. Because if God is omniscient, he knows about every problem any of us will ever face in life. In his omnipotence, he was able to reveal these eternal principles to us that have been preserved for us in his word. And through the indwelling of the spirit of God, plus the instruction of the word of God, then the people of God, the believer, is instructed as to how to handle these particular problems. So we are to put on the full armor of God in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God is an aorist imperative. Now, there's a difference between an aorist imperative, an aorist is a tense form that you have in Greek, you don't have it in English, and a present imperative. And here's the difference. A present imperative is emphasizing that this is something that is to be a continuous characteristic in somebody's life at at that particular moment. So one, one day I might use a present imperative because what I want to emphasize is that this is to be a continuous characteristic in your life. But let's say three weeks from now I see you failing in something, and I use the same command, but I put it in an aorist tense. Now what I'm saying is you need to make this a priority. It still needs to be continuous, but at the under these other circumstances, my concern is not that you make this a continuous action, is that you get off your rear end and make it a priority. Now, once you begin to do that, then we can shift back to the present tense and talk about making this a continuous action. So that the difference between a present imperative and an aorist imperative has to do with the particular emphasis of the circumstance from from Paul's viewpoint, from the writer of Scripture's viewpoint, from God's viewpoint, because God the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture, rather than saying things like you need to start something that you're not already doing those kinds of things, that's not the emphasis. We're to put on the full armor of God. It's a it's an aorist imperative emphasizing priority. This is the priority of the believer's life. If you don't learn to put on the full armor of God, you will never, ever make it anywhere in the spiritual life. So we have to understand what it is and how to put it on. So we are to put on the full armor of God so that result clause, it's for a purpose, so that we will be able to stand firm, so that we will be able to maintain that defensive posture against the schemes of the devil. Now the schemes of the devil are not necessarily direct assaults by the devil. We don't run around like Flip Wilson saying that the devil made me do it. But behind every assault, there is the demonic, overall demonic, satanic strategy. Satan is not omnipresent, neither is he omnipotent, so he has to use his minions, the demons, to carry out all of his uh, schemes. He also works through various uh, human uh, philosophers and teachers, false teachers and all of that. The defense is based on applying the word of God. It is not based on knowing where the attack is coming from. So this is another mistake people make. Well, if I'm, feeling, if I'm going through this temptation, can I say that's coming from the devil? It doesn't matter. Whether it's coming from the devil, whether it's coming from the cosmic system, or whether it's coming from your own sin nature, the bottom line is you yield to it through your volition in your thinking, and that's where the battle is. And so the issue is either think doctrine or think human viewpoint. comes down to thinking. So we are to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil, and his schemes are to distract us from living the spiritual life. So we put on the full armor. It's like it's pictured as just putting on clothing. We come to Hebrew. I mean Ephesians 6:12. For our struggle, which is sort of a pusillanimous way of expressing the spiritual conflict we're in, it's not. It's much more intense than a struggle. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, the point is that it may not be against particular individual Muslims or Marxists or atheists or whatever it is against, ultimately against the forces of Satan. Our response as believers toward individuals, whatever their false thinking may be, is to give them the gospel, not to attack them, blame them, ...or assault them. Our struggle ultimately is not against flesh and blood. That word for, word for struggle is the Greek word pale, which means to wrestle. It's that one is seeking leverage over another. One man is wrestling another man to seek to pin him. Now, are you uh, being pinned to the ground by cosmic thinking? Are you being pinned to the ground by your own circumstances? Or, are you going to use the word of God and the spirit of God to leverage against the enemy of the believer in order to have victory. That's the idea. Pale is a very strong word. It's based on the same root that the Greeks used to translate wrestler, uh, or that the rabbis used to translate wrestler in the Old Testament. Who was a wrestler in the Old Testament? It was Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God at a place called Peniel. That was where he got a new name called Israel, but he was a wrestler. And so that root word P-A-L-E was applied by the Greeks to the people of the wrestler. And it was the Greeks who first originated the name Palestinian. It's not from Philistine. It's from wrestler because they were the descendants of Jacob, the one who wrestled with God, the angel of God at so I just want to make sure you're correct on that, that, that you don't have to buy into Arab-Muslim propaganda or the distortions of ignorant people who have followed that. Uh, pay attention to language studies. So we are in a struggle. That was just a little extra information for, without charge. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this Darkness, these are various hierarchies within the uh, demonic um, demonic structure against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. our Christian life is not lived just on the plane of your experience, but in the uh, but in light of the entire angelic conflict, this is why when we get into Revelation 2 and 3, those seven letters to the seven churches are posted to the angel of each church is because it lets us know that the evaluation of our behavior is being watched by angels and that a record is being kept. So we do not live uh, simply within the plane of three-dimensional life. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist. There it is again. You think Paul really wants you to resist, to defend. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Now the first thing we do is go to 6.14. He says, stand firm therefore. Now this is an aorist Imperative to stand firm here, an aorist active imperative, and it's followed by a couple of aorist participles. Now, this is an interesting little point of Greek grammar, that when you have these aorist kind of participles like this preceded by an aorist imperative, the aorist imperative is giving you the prerequisite for accomplishing the action of the participles. And the action of the participle sort of take on an imperatival sense from the initial, uh, initial imperative. So we stand firm, having girded. So you've got to gird your loins with truth before you can stand firm. You have to put on the breastplate of righteousness before you can stand firm. So the standing firm gives you... Gives you the mandate and then the participles give you your, your prerequisites. I think I got that backwards earlier, so let me make that clear. The stand firm gives you the mandate. The participles are participles of attendant circumstance that give you the prerequisites that you have to accomplish in order to fulfill the primary command of standing firm. So the first thing you do is you put on, you gird your loins with truth. Now that, that communicates well to most of you, doesn't it? Anybody here girded their loins this morning? (coughs) Standing firm is our primary command. The whole imagery here is based off of the armor of a Roman soldier. Now, the anchor piece of the the Roman armor was this about six-inch thick or wide leather belt. Everything he wore anchored to that, his the, the greaves on his legs, his breastplate, his uh, sword, everything somehow was pulled together and hung together and was uh, grounded into this belt. And so under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says it's the belt that is the key element. Now, uh, the Romans wore robes and togas, and this would get in the way if they went into battle. So they would gird up their loins, which means they would take up the robe, and they would gather it up and stuff it into the belt. That means they're getting rid of the distractions. What gets rid of the distraction or the hindrances in life is truth. Truth is the word of God. It is the truth of God's word, Bible doctrine, that is what anchors everything in life. If you're not squared away with Bible doctrine as the anchor in your soul, then it doesn't matter what else you're doing. So we start with the word of God. We start with truth. Jesus prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17:17, 17, 17, Sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. So before we can stand firm, we have to make sure that we have removed the distractions in our life by the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word is the anchor point in the thinking of our soul. Then we come to verse um, 15. And having shod your feet. When we put on the breastplate of righteousness, I think I skipped that. Uh, verse forty. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And see, this is something you put on as a believer after salvation. It's not imputed righteousness. It is experiential righteousness it is that righteousness which comes as as part of the fruit of the spirit as the believer grows to mature when you put on the whole armor of God that's tantamount to becoming a mature believer so that you can become an effective uh, soldier in Christ and being effective as a believer doesn't begin with salvation it begins with maturity how many of y'all when you were 10 years old couldn't wait to uh, become an adult that's because you knew that life began as an adult, not when you're still a child. Believer, you need to grow up. You're never going to experience everything God has for you in the spiritual life until you reach spiritual maturity. So the breastplate of righteousness is positional and because that's where it starts with that imputed righteousness and salvation, but it's experiential as we grow and mature and walk by means of the Spirit. The next element is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. This is defensive in nature. This is the uh, large shield that the Roman soldier would plant in the ground and crouch behind, and as the enemy would uh, send a uh, mass of arrows overhead, Uh, As all of the soldiers in the phalanx would come together, they would take these shields and hold them up in unison, and that would defend them against these assaults. So it is the shield of faith, not salvation faith, but faith rest drill faith. It is the trusting in the principles and the promises and the provisions of God that enable us to uh, withstand the assaults of Satan. Our feet are then shod with the uh, peace, the gospel of peace. Verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is a foundation, as any soldier knows, there's nothing quite as important as uh, what's on your feet and keeping your feet comfortable. In fact, this last summer as, uh, I talked with uh, major as he was getting ready to depart for Iraq. he, uh, He had just gotten all of his equipment, and he said no soldier in the history of the world has had his feet as well protected as the 21st century American soldier. That was almost the first thing that came out of his mouth. Footwear is very important, and the footwear that we have is related to the gospel. That's our foundation, that we have peace with God. This is what Paul says in Romans Uh, chapter uh, 5 verse 1 is having been justified we now have peace with God that is the foundation the helmet of salvation has to do with our personal sense of our eternal destination the helmet protects the head the brain the mind the thinking it is not salvation the sense of gaining eternal life. It is, as the word is often used in Scripture with a focus on the realization of everything that God has given us in the future, that we will be saved. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, having now been justified by faith, past tense, we shall be saved. Future tense. It is the full realization at glorification of all that we have with a view towards our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So that helmet of salvation keeps our thinking focused on what God is doing today in preparing us for eternity. We take up the shield of faith with which we're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The last element is the sword of the spirit. Now, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that this is an offensive weapon. This isn't an offensive weapon. It is a defensive weapon. And in defense, you often have counter-offensive action, which takes place, but usually the larger broadsword was thought of by the Romans as their primary offensive action. It is the short sword that was used in uh, close combat, and the sword is described as the word of God. It's not the logos of God here. It's the rhema of God, the spoken or applied word of God. The illustration of this is what we went through uh, back when we studied the temptations of Christ, how did Jesus co- counter every temptation that the devil threw at him? He quoted the Word of God. He threw doctrine back. him. No, notice he didn't just cite some abstract doctrine and just say, well, you know, I'm not going to do this because of the doctrine of such and such. No, he quoted Scripture, and he used it to counter the assault of Satan. As Satan would thrust, he would perish. With the Word of God. That's why I say this is primarily a defensive weapon in a defensive posture. He's not using it to attack, he's using it, the Word of God, to defend the thinking so that as temptation comes from the sin nature, from the world, or from Satan, we counter it by the doctrine that's in our soul, by the Word of God that we know. As I keep saying, we need to memorize Scripture, you need to know promises. Because when you're going down the highway and you don't have your Bible with you, and you go, God, I want to claim a promise, I think it's somewhere. I think it might be in the Old Testament. Maybe. Go something like this, you know. Uh, it, it's, it's the word of God that is alive and powerful, not theological principles that are alive and powerful. So we need to know uh, the word of God. So the bottom line is we need to put on the full armor as a result of having it in place. We are able to stand firm. And the last thing that is said is in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication by means of the Spirit. Now, what role does prayer have here? We put on all this armor. How does prayer tie it together? Prayer is how the believer communicates with headquarters. It's our communication system. So we are to pray with all prayer and supplication by means of the Spirit. That means that we are filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. We're not trying to put this armor on according to the principles of the flesh, but by walking by means of the Spirit. Conclusion being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Not just focusing on our own spiritual life, but dealing with the spiritual life of the whole body of believers. It's not all about you and your spiritual growth. It's about the body of Christ and the growth, maturity, and witness of the entire body of Christ during the church age. This embodies what I often talk about as the problem-solving devices. These are just a summation, a synthesis of the basic commands of Scripture related to how a believer is supposed to walk. When you fail, you stumble, you trip, you confess your sin. That gets you back in fellowship where you can use the Word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's called being filled by means of the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. We apply it through trusting, claiming promises. That's the faith rest drill. As we grow, we understand the grace of God, that he provided everything for life and godliness. That's grace orientation. But we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's doctrinal orientation. But we have to live in light of eternity. For we are not as yet what we shall be, but we shall be like him. We have to focus on the future. We, as part of this, we grow in our knowledge of God and we come to love him. That provides additional motivation as we come to love God the Father. And then as a result of that, that has played out in our lives as we learn to love one another as Christ has loved us. That is the mark of the believer, John thirteen thirty four and 35. As a result of that, we... Uh, Our focus is more and more on who Jesus is and what he did for us and we are to emulate his character under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that's occupation with Christ ending up in having stable joyful contentment happiness in life no matter what the circumstances are, not being overrun by the details of life but being mentally in control of the details of life that is inner happiness those are the Ten stress busters. All of that, just another way, another illustration of talking about the armor of God, doing what God says to do, standing firm in the armor of God, grounded on doctrine. It is doctrine that gives us what we need to be victorious in the conflict, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through these things to see how Each of us as believers is related to this angelic conflict to understand that our lives are not lived in isolation, but they are part of a conflict that began in eternity past. Our lives are lived as a display before the angels and man witnesses to your grace, your power, your provision for us. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. When God the Father imputed to him the sins of the world between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that day, he was aware of every sin you would ever commit. There will be no surprises. Every sin was paid for. The only thing left for you to do is to trust in him rely upon him alone for your salvation the instant you trust in christ as your savior you have eternal life god in his omniscience knows what you're relying on at that instant he imputes to you the perfect righteousness of christ justifies you and regenerates you and this can never be reversed father we pray that you would challenge each of us here this morning to remember that we are full-time soldiers in your army we are full-time christian warriors And the issue before us is whether we are going to be uh, victorious in our Christian warfare or whether we will become casualties in the conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.